Welcome to the Planet Earth podcast. I'm Richard Hollingham, down by the riverside to hear about revitalising urban rivers. Also this time, the hot topics bothering conservationists in 2012. Nanotechnology is clearly an enormous area and there are lots of exciting possibilities, including lots of exciting environmental possibilities, including graphene. As a material, it has all sorts of exciting properties that can be of great benefit. I'm in Carl Scholten near Croydon in south-west London. 200 years ago, this was a rural village. Now it's part of the vast suburbs encircling London. The river at its centre, the Wandle, once flowed through fields of crops. Now it's surrounded by roads, railways, houses and businesses. And rivers in places like this often end up neglected, polluted and unloved. Some even get turned into sewers. So how can you restore urban rivers to at least some of their former glory? Well, with me beside the Wandle is Angela Gurnell from Queen Mary University of London, whose research has been tackling this question. I'm also joined by Dave Webb from the Environment Agency and Bella Davis of the Wandle Trust. Now, Bella, first of all, just set the scene for us here. You can hear we're beside a busy road almost beneath the arches of a railway track. And the river itself, there's not a, a great deal to it. It's more a, a wide stream. At this point uh, in the headwaters of the river, it certainly is a right, wide stream. Further downstream, it's obviously much wider. And, and what sort of things has this river been subjected to over the last, I don't know, couple of hundred years? A couple of hundred years ago, this area was much more rural and the river had already been impounded by lots of mills. It's actually known as one of the hardest worked rivers in the world for its size. And moving forward from then, we had the Industrial Revolution and there was an awful lot of pollution went in. General disregard for rivers across the country. By the 1960s, it was an open sewer and more or less biologically dead. Through the 70s, it got very canalised and made very straight um, to help with flood defence issues. And then rolling forward to now, we're trying to restore many of the natural processes and natural habitats that would have been there. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about what what you've done uh, later on. But Angela, if I can bring you in. Your your research really involves coming up with the basis of, of this restoration work. The work I've done has really been to come up with a way of measuring various properties of these rivers and then using that to classify and separate the good sections from the bad in terms of largely their aesthetics, but if you then combine that with information on water quality, then you can, you can start to understand how that might affect the organisms, particularly the animals that live within the river. So what are you aiming for then? What we aimed for originally was to try and understand how the engineering of these urban rivers for flood defence or for diversions maybe around areas that were to be developed, to understand how that engineering actually affected the character of the river. And what we found was by measuring, if you like, properties of the engineering and then measuring properties of the natural features of the river that actually, quite surprisingly, some types of, uh, of engineering, particularly where they're, they're patchy and varied, can actually support quite a, a, a varied uh, natural functioning. Clearly, uh, the highest quality rivers in urban areas will be those where there's space for them to, to adjust and where the engineers haven't needed to go in 
in and, and straighten them and put in reinforcement and so on. But I think, as I say, the surprising finding we had was that actually certain types of engineering are compatible with quite a varied and aesthetically pleasing and, if the water quality is good, uh, quite a, a strong sort of ecological functioning of these rivers. So really, all is not lost, even if it's surrounded by concrete and in an urban area? No, and I think the way that, that, that river restoration is going in urban areas now is that clearly you can, first of all, go into the sites where you've got the space to do more or less what you like, but increasingly there's opportunities in situations like this where we're standing, where the river's confined on one side by a road, on the other side by housing, and above us by a, a railway bridge. You can still do quite a lot to improve that section by just uh, gently pushing away at the engineering and removing the bits that you actually don't need and allowing, allowing the river to recover in a patchy way. Well, Bella, let's talk about what you've done on the area here. In fact, we're, we're standing on, on gravel. There wasn't gravel here before, I, I guess. The river is quite fast-flowing beside here. Then it disappears under the, the railway bridge. You've got some logs there. And, I mean, apart from the road, if you just shield out one side of the frame, if you like, if you, if you look at that, you could almost be in the countryside. That's right. It just shows that what you can achieve um, within an urban space, these hidden gems, if you like. What we've actually done at this particular site is it used to be um, very overwide and a weir was put in, in a place to hold that water back. Oh, I can just see, is that uh, just across the, the river from where we are, there's a sort of broken bit of concrete. Was that where the weir was? That's where we've taken it out. The effect that it actually had was to impound water behind it and then have a very, very shallow flow over the top, which was a, an impassable barrier to pretty much all fish and a lot of other organisms as well. So we wanted to reconnect this bit of the river. And what we did was to knock out part of the weir and to channel the water through that. So the same volume of water is going through a smaller space, so it's going much faster as it would more naturally. We've introduced about 60 tonnes of gravel through this area and we've sculpted that so it has a range of different habitats um, within that different morphology to it. We've narrowed the river upstream and put in place new banks, taken out some of the silt that was held behind the weir and held that in place in the new bank so we haven't taken it off site uh, that's created the new bank and we've put in over the top over a thousand native plants and one of the key things is that an awful lot of this work was actually done with local volunteers from the local community so they've been really at the heart of the project getting involved within it with it and this is now their project and their patch to look out for. So Dave can this be done in other rivers is this something that you're looking at across the UK or even around the world? Oh, absolutely. Uh, in some respects, the Wandle is quite typical of many of London rivers. 30 years ago, the poor water quality was the determining factor for the ecology, but with improvements in water quality, habitat has become more significant in determining what lives in the river. And across London, we have been helping many groups to actually establish river restoration projects and actually encourage people to get involved in the rivers. As I say, 30 years ago, with the water quality, people were almost actively uh, encouraged to keep away from rivers. The important thing as well is that 
with the interventions in the past, it's not only destroyed the habitat, but it's also fragmented habitat. And so what we have is a, a situation where we can have restoration of channels within open spaces but it's also important to maintain that habitat continuity and remove the various blockages to enable species to move from one good bit of habitat to another. So by removing things like the weir here you're actually what reconnecting the, the river and making it as one again? That's correct. So that enables species to utilise habitat they couldn't access before. But also, importantly, it also makes the river more resilient to pressures such as extreme flooding events or even pollution, enabling species to be able to recolonise areas when, unfortunately, you do have problems. Bella, just in this area, have you noticed people are appreciating the river more? Yes, I think they are. We've spent quite a lot of time in this area over the last year and we've taken particular care to inform everyone of what's going on and let them know that this is their patch and they can be involved as well. And over time, the increased interest in it has been um, quite magnificent and we've had a lot of support from it. And particularly now, um, we're really delighted that we've created a lot of this habitat so that uh, wild brown trout can reach their spawning grounds and that's what a lot of the gravel was about so that they have spawning beds and they have actually spawned in this very section and so there are a lot of other local people anglers or people just interested in wildlife and fish who are also very supportive and really pleased as well and dave as if to prove the point everything we've been talking about you say you saw a kingfisher on here i did i i did and it's actually not uncommon to see kingfishers on many of our urban rivers which is fantastic so 30 years ago the idea that you would have had trout within greater london boundaries seeing kingfishers both in the middle of wandsworth and lewisham it would have been the thought ridiculous but actually now it's quite common and i think it represents now the understanding that when we're managing the rivers we need to manage them in an integrated way and so the past ideas that you only manage a river for either flood defence or for moving wastewater from A to B is gone. People now have an aspiration that we do all those things but do it in a way that maintains the vitality of the life within the river. Dave Webb from the Environment Agency, Bella Davis from the Wandle Trust and Angela Gurnell from Queen Mary University of London. Thank you very much. Well, later in the Planet Earth podcast, I'll be visiting a project that's exposing a river to daylight for the first time in decades. You can follow us on Twitter, find us on Facebook, where we'll post some pictures of our recording today and links to the Urban River Survey website. For the latest news from the natural world, do visit Planet Earth online. Well, the latest study into the top conservation issues facing the world gives an insight, perhaps, into the problems we may be reporting on in the coming years. Compiled by an international team, concerns include mining in the deep sea for rare earth elements, invasive species in Antarctic waters, as well as issues around the rapid development of new technologies. Well, I went to the Department of Zoology at the University of Cambridge to talk to the leader of the research, Bill Sutherland. Well, we see our role as identifying issues that we think warrant greater research and then feeding that research into the policy process so that policymakers can be more formed and make better decisions when they need to do so. Well, let's look at the, the list here which I've got in front of me. I won't run through all 15 issues, but there's 
certainly a key theme with with the first four, all really marine conservation. You talk about warming of the deep sea, mining in the deep ocean, methane venting from the ocean floor, and climate-driven colonisations in Antarctic waters, by which you mean invasive species, really, moving into these these pristine Antarctic territories. Uh, Absolutely, and I noticed that theme too. And I think partly it's because there's some serious marine problems, but also the technology is improving, so we're learning a lot more about marine habitats and we're beginning to identify some of the serious up-and-coming threats. Now, one of the other issues I was quite taken with on, on this list was graphene. Now, this year, the UK government has put £50 million into graphene research. There have been Nobel Prize winners for for graphene research. It's seen as the next big technological thing. Absolutely. And nanotechnology is clearly an enormous area, and there are lots of exciting possibilities, including lots of exciting environmental possibilities, including graphene. As a material, it has all sorts of exciting properties that can be of great benefit. What we do is we say that we really want to then look at what the consequences of that might be and just make sure that there aren't any unforeseen environmental consequences, bearing in mind there's likely to be such a huge change with the development of nanotechnology. Is that what a lot of this is about, following technology, seeing a new technology and saying, well, what are the implications of that for the environment? Uh, Very often. And I think often as environmental scientists, we've not been very good at that. I think for the GM debate, we didn't actually have the science in place when the major decisions had to be made. So we want to look ahead and make sure we've got the science in place for new technologies and for other issues as well, so that we can foresee what the debate might be and make sure the debate is better informed. Uh, The other one on the list, I didn't even know what these were, uh, nuclear batteries. what, What is a nuclear battery and why are you worried about it? Nuclear battery is a new way of generating energy, and you can do it very much on a small scale. And that means that you can then have energy sources in new areas, and that has benefits for environmental monitoring. It also means that you can create development in areas that would otherwise be impossible. And we're interested in identifying any sort of major environmental disruption, any environmental change that might change the way the world looks. And it was thought that that might be one of these sorts of features. I suppose, just off the top of my head, the obvious problem with a a nuclear battery is what happens when someone throws it away. Uh, Absolutely, that is a major problem, and they're much less polluting than nuclear power stations, but obviously they have serious issues uh, related to the waste. They also, by providing easy sources of energy, if they are widely developed, will result probably in different patterns of development, and we're interested in then predicting what the consequences of those might be. Now, just a few metres away from your office is the Zoological Museum here in Cambridge. And it's quite sobering walking around to see the number of extinct birds on display, fossils as a giant sloth. Is that something that keeps you going, saying we don't want another one of those? Absolutely. We're committed in Cambridge to developing conservation and making conservation more related to policymakers and with the hope that we can then reduce the likelihood of future extinctions. That's clearly extremely important and we're deeply committed to it. This is the third year you've done it. Can you look back and say, well, we identified that or can you look at any successes? 
Well, the one where the one we like most, but I think it's probably a complete coincidence, is in the first one we did, we identified the issue of high latitude volcanism and particularly what would happen if Icelandic volcanoes went off. And then a couple of months later, that happened. I've been accused of trying to set it off. I think that's just fortuitous. Uh, but a number of the other issues have very much come up the agenda since. So fracking, we identified fracking in our meeting two years ago, and now that's a, the, the issue of generating gas by pumping water into rocks. And that's now a major environmental concern. Bill Sutherland from the University of Cambridge. And you can find the full list of those hot conservation topics for 2012 at Planet Earth Online. Well, I've moved a few miles down the road near the centre of Croydon to a park where they're applying the science we talked about earlier to another part of the River Wandle, but in an even more dramatic way. Angela Gurnell from Queen Mary University of London is still with me, as is Tom Sweeney from Croydon Council. Tom, this park is surrounded by a built-up area. There's a gasometer in the distance, a tram next to us. And the park itself, well, it's closed. Why? The park's been closed for the next uh, 48 weeks to restore the River Wandle and to provide some new recreational facilities for the local community. Now, you say the river, there's no sign of a river. In fact, the park is it's really just a field with a few trees. In 1967, the council culverted the river. It was buried underground, but in a few weeks' time, we will have the signs of the River Wandle sort of re-emerging in the park. So where is it? We're standing on top of it at the moment. <laughs> OK, so, so point out, we're on a, a slightly muddy area of, of the, the field here. We have some red lines over here which denote where we're going to put the new headwall structure for the river. And um, it then stretches back towards the centre of Croydon through the middle of that open field there to the other end of the park and it does go on sort of through the town for a number of kilometres up to the um, Surrey Hills. So you're essentially turning a pipe back into a river? Yes, the construction is relatively straightforward in that you dig down to the pipe. Well it's a box culvert rather than a pipe so it's a big concrete box, you take the lid off it and you knock the sides off and you take out the the base of it and then you landscape the whole thing into a more natural profile. And Angela, what sort of difference does doing something like this make to to a river? By opening up these culverted sections, we connect the sections of river back together again and that's fantastic from an ecological point of view because it allows the the species to to move up and down the system. Are there a lot of rivers like this, lost rivers if if you like? Absolutely. We've all heard of Fleet Street. Well, underneath Fleet Street, there's a river which doesn't see the light of day now until it actually joins the Thames. It's been completely put into uh, underground uh, pipe from source to, to mouth. But, I mean, here, it's fantastic. We've got a very large park. There's loads of space. So not only can you take the top off the culvert, if you like, but you can create a, a quite a nice, wide, natural channel. And then coupled with that, you can start, instead of dealing with water in cities by basically draining the water off as quickly and efficiently as possible, you can start putting areas into the river system where the river can flood without doing any damage and, in fact, can do a, a lot of good in terms of creating wetland areas 
areas and areas that are, are varied and, and, and really pleasant for recreation and for wildlife in combination. So Tom, is flooding one of the issues you're trying to address? Yes, we've had to go through an extensive flood risk assessment process with the Environment Agency and we show considerable benefits to the surrounding area. Effectively, the park will act as a large sump for water, particularly at times of well high-intensity rainfall events and with climate change as well coming into it. There is a lot of water that comes through Croydon very, very quickly and tends to go into the next-door boroughs. And there's a part of Sutton called Richmond Green which got quite badly flooded in, I think it was 2008. And this scheme will particularly sort of slow down that intense wave of water that uh, flows down there when you do get these events. Angela and Tom, thank you both very much. And that's the Planet Earth podcast from the Natural Environment Research Council. From Croydon, thanks for listening.